This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, writer and researcher at MLB.com. Joined by MLB.com national content editor, Matt Myers. Today is Wednesday, April 5th, and it is the first podcast of the regular season. And there is so much baseball stuff that has happened that I'm like right now on my phone watching Jorge Soler hit dingers off the Twins. And there's just so much to get to. We're going to talk a little bit about the effects of the new rules. We're just going to kind of dip and dive into a bunch of different teams because lots of interesting stuff has happened. And most importantly, the triumphant return of the guy you should know a little more about. I can honestly tell you, I had never heard of Matt's guy before like three days ago. Yes, Matt's doing the celebratory dance over there. Matt, there's so many things to talk about. I think the most obvious thing people are interested in, effects of all the rule changes. And, you know, the pitch timers worked great. We're down like 25 minutes. I think that's obvious and expected and it's fantastic. And yet you can correct me if I'm wrong. That's not what people are talking about the most. It's stolen bases, right? Like, isn't that the, the thing that's getting the most attention here? I mean, a little bit of, it might be one in one A. I think we knew from spring training, the game times are going to be down. So I think we could be prepared for that. You know, you don't know how things are going to translate from spring training to the regular season, such as stolen bases. So seeing stolen bases also be up in the regular season and as we'll get to in a little bit, it's more about actually maybe the percentage that's up as opposed to just the raw total of stolen bases. But it's, I mean, it's cool, right? This is part of why some of these changes were made was like, hey, fans want more of this. What can we do to sort of like finesse the game to to get more of it? And I think it has more to do with the disengagement rule, which you could argue is more about the pitch clock than it is about trying to to add more steals. It just so happens that that's like a happy, you know, secondary effect to it. Um, and I guess the bigger bases are a little bit of it, but like, Usually you're, when you're stealing stolen bases, it's bases stolen on the pitcher. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard this argument a couple of times. That like, oh, the you know extra stolen base accessory is based on the slightly bigger bases. And it's like, I just don't see it that way. How many stolen bases have you seen already this season where there's just no throw, right? And here's it. We have data to back this up. Uh, there's something actually cool I want to get to in just a second. But first, let's set the stage here. And um, I kind of took this from my friend Jason Collette, who I just saw the other day. In the first five days of the last two seasons combined, first five days of 21 and 22, 74% success rate on 117 attempts. Uh, in the first five days of this season, 83% success rate on 122 attempts. That's right. There were five more attempts in the first five days of this year than there were in the first five days of the previous two years combined. And we talked about this a little bit before the show with our colleague, Andrew Simon. I know that steals are up because I work here and follow the people with the data and I can see the numbers. But having watched the games, I don't look at this and go, oh my God, steals are out of control. It just doesn't feel that way. Not in the same way where it was like home runs were going nuts a couple years ago, which I think is a good thing because if you're just like watching the game and you haven't read all the supporting detail, uh, you may not it's you'd probably see more steals and say that's cool, but not like, oh my God, what's happening? Like, is that how you've perceived it too? We actually went through the numbers, right? Um, our colleague David Adler looked up the numbers. And in terms of stolen bases attempts per game, 
it's actually it, it's definitely up from last year, right? Through through Tuesday this year, um, we had 1.54 stolen base attempts per game, right? And last year through seven games, so slightly apples to apples, but basically the same idea, it was 1.02 stolen bases attempts per game, which, hey, that's a big increase, right? That's a 50% increase. However, if you go back to 2017, not that long ago, <laughs> stolen bases were 1.5, there were 1.55 attempts per game, basically exactly what you're getting and through the first week, 1.55 per game, which was exactly what you're getting now. In 2012, it was 1.66. So in terms of stolen base attempts, it's similar to what we've seen in the recent past. I think the differences are twofold, one of which is the success rate is definitely way up. Right now, Going coming into today was 83%. Last year, it was 69%. 2017, 72%. 2012, it was 66% through a week of the season. So that's one difference. And I think the other difference is there are a few teams who are driving this narrative. So there's basically a few teams that are stealing a lot, and that almost makes it seem like it's a league-wide thing, but it really isn't. Um, again, courtesy of our, our friend Andrew Simon, the top eight teams are 56 for 62, 90% success rate. The bottom 22 teams are 55 for 70, 79% success rate. So it's like basically the top eight teams have as, almost as many steal attempts and have more stolen bases total, successful steals, than the bottom 22 teams. So it's like it's a few teams. It's like the Orioles and a couple other teams that are really driving this narrative. Yeah, the Orioles were 11 for 11 coming into the day, which I'm still not 100% sure if that's the Orioles or the Red Sox who they were playing and gave up most of those. The Twins, who are playing right now, um, at least from our point of view, ruined a really nice note I had because entering today, they had not ex- they had not had a stolen base or a caught stealing. They'd had a few attempts ruined on uh, foul balls, uh, but they have had a couple today. But you said a number that I thought was really interesting. You said uh, 72% in 2017, right? That was the stolen base success rate. Five years ago, six years ago, was 72%. And to pick another year at random, 1987, the stolen base success rate was 73%. And it's fluctuated here and there, but it's usually around that 70%-ish number. So what I thought would be interesting to do is, um, I guess, our, another colleague, Jason Bernard, to help me with this. I split out the success rate by number of disengagements, right? So that's the new rule this year. You get two disengagements, which can be a throw or just stepping off or whatever, and then if you don't get him the third time, it's a buck. And if you split not only the success rate, but also the lead distances by zero, one, and two, it's really interesting because the stolen base success rate, when there have been zero disengagements, is, wait for it, 72%. It's like exactly the same. On one disengagement, the lead distance goes up by almost two feet. It's 84%. And on two disengagements, enormous grain of salt here because there's only been two stolen base attempts on two. Uh, the lead distance goes up by another foot and a half, and it's 100% success rate. So it is really interesting like how valuable of a currency these disengagements are turning out to be. Because if you steal when there's been no throws or anything, uh, stolen base success rate's about the same. But if you manage to get that throw over, you're taking a bigger lead because the pitcher is less likely to like throw over. And that's where the success rate skyrockets. So I, now I'm starting to wonder, like, you know the smart teams know this. Are they teaching or will they be teaching their runners just to draw that throw, just to get the guy off? Because that will put you in a better position to succeed. And I got to say, as I'm, as I'm saying all this, here's what I'm thinking in my head is whether or not I like these rules or don't, this is like a whole new strategy to talk about. That is super fun to have like a brand new thing to think about in baseball. That's cool to me. And it's within the realm of the pitch clock and the disengagement rules. So like it shouldn't add time. Like if suddenly we get a lot more two throws over, it's not going to add a significant amount of time 
to the game. We, you know, we talked about the back picks. I don't get the sense back picks are up in a way that's like meaningful. So what I'm also wondering about now is also because the success rate is up, our team's going to start trying to steal more. And then in which case the success rate would almost certainly go down because you'd be have a lot more edge cases of trying to steal with guys that maybe shouldn't be stealing bases. My guess is over the course of the season that what's what, what do we say the success rate is right now is 83%. My guess is that number will go down, but the question is, does it go down to 80% or does it go back to like, you know, historical norms of like 75% down to 70? I'm not, I'm not sure. The, the other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, the effects of the shift limitation. And this is, deeply complicated and more so than we'll get to here. But the first thing people like to look at is, okay, batting average on balls in play, right? Is the, is the shift limitation giving hits back? And the answer is yes with a but. Um, batting average on balls in play entering today is 297. Last year it was 290. That's a nice little bump. It's about what we expected. But it's up in some kind of dumb ways. Ground ball batting average on balls in play is actually down by one point. Think about that. Line drive batting average on balls in play is up by almost 40 points. Fly balls up a little bit, pop-ups are up a little bit too. That's not anything. It just, there's been a lot of real weird weather-related bad defensive plays. The one that stands out to me more than most, and this goes back to something we discussed a couple weeks ago, line drive batting average on balls in play is up way more than ground ball is. And I think that might be because, and this is just my hypothesis, I haven't dug into this closely or anything. As we said a couple weeks ago, the biggest impact of this new rule might not be that you can't have three guys on one side. It might be that you got to have all your guys on the dirt because I feel like that's what's happening here is you can't have this second baseman like 10 feet out in the dirt where he might catch that line drive that might have been otherwise over his head. And I, I feel like we haven't really thought about this in the sense that it's two limitations. You know, you can't have three guys and you can't be on the grass. And that is probably the one that is not getting as much notice is the, the depth limitation. And I feel like these numbers are pointing to that's more important than having had three guys there in the first place. It seems that way. I mean, as it is, I've already seen a bunch of ground balls up the middle still convert to outs because the shortstop or second baseman is standing literally like two inches on the other side of the base. And, you know, up until 10 years ago, when the shift really started to, to take hold league-wide, teams already kind of played this way, but they did often, especially against left-handed pull hitters, have their second baseman a couple of, maybe not like, you know, 15 feet, 20 feet into right field, but like maybe three to seven feet into right field. And like, no one ever thought twice about it because it was like, oh, well, yeah, sure, why not? That's where you should stand. So like in some ways, this is the bigger, this would be like if they said to outfielders, hey, outfielders, we want more triples. So you're not allowed to, you have to stand within, you know, 250 feet of home plate, right? Like that's kind of like what it's, it's, it's to your point. And I, I don't think it occurred to me until you showed me these numbers that like, that's actually maybe the bigger deal here. Yeah, up the middle, ground ball, BABIP like straight up the middle grounders, is 236. It is the lowest on record for any season we have. So all the guys are like, yeah, I think you're going to see those hits up the middle coming back again. No, no, I don't think you are. We'll take a quick break, and Matt and I are going to come spin around the majors because there's just so many things to talk about. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks.
Back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello, Matt Myers. Uh, we're going to talk about the Cardinals and a whole bunch of other teams right now. The Cardinals have put up 10 hits in each of their first five games, but all anyone is talking about is Tyler O'Neill getting benched today and called out by his manager. Here's what happened. Last night, it was the seventh inning. They are down by three runs to Atlanta. O'Neill is on second base. He attempts to score on a single to right field, and he's thrown out by Ronald Acuna. Okay, it happens. Uh, but his manager, Ali Marmol, said there's a, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, there's a way we play and that's not it. O'Neill was not in the lineup today. Not very happy. He had a whole bunch of quotes that said, I don't think it should have been handled that way. We should keep it internally. And I tend to agree with him. It's it's kind of a rough look to you know call out your player like that. But here's my question. I was thinking about this. Ronald Acuna, if you look at the StatCast arm strength leaderboards from last year, is number one, or I guess tied with Nadine, but he's basically got the strongest outfield arm you can. Do you know how hard he threw on that play, Matt? How hard? 92 miles an hour, which is like fine, right? It's, it's like a, like a changeup for him. It's like a changeup for him. And I'm thinking if he's doing that, and it's, it was a wet field, by the way. The weather was terrible. Does that say he knew that he didn't have to air it out? He's like, oh, I got this guy. Because if you watch the replay, it, he's not like going all out. He's not throwing 105 here. And so I'm sort of wondering, A, uh, in that situation on a bad field, down by three with a guy who had a lot of hamstring issues last year. Should he even have been sent? Uh, and B, was he not you know, running as hard as he could? It's hard for us to say from here. I don't know. The whole thing's just a bad look, in, in my opinion. It's weird because it like it dragged into today, right? It happened last night. You'd think, okay, maybe cooler heads would prevail. And then today he's benched, and then O'Neill pops off again. It's just the whole thing is weird. Although the biggest, most interesting re- revelation for me in this whole thing is that the Cardinals' third base coach is named Pop Warner. Did you know this? Yes, I did. Pop Warner, and then uh, I think the Giants football Giants defensive coordinator is Wink Martindale. There's a whole lot of weird names in sports right now. <laughs> so it's tough, right? Because this is a guy you're counting on. If you look at the you know the way that this team is lined up, like you expect, he basically won the starting center field job. You know, and um, if if he is not going to be happy there and if they're going to potentially, I mean, I'm not saying this is the end of his Cardinals career, obviously not, but it's like how many other teams would love to have Tyler O'Neill right now? Very good defender, powerful bat. Uh, and I kind of think it goes back to some of the culture change we've seen in baseball where it's like, you don't necessarily want a guy to go out at all times. If he's been hurt, you want him to be healthy. This is a big problem for them last year. And O'Neill alluded to that last night. He was like, I've been, you know, I've had hamstring problems in the past. I've been working on the way I run. I was really trying to be cognizant of it. Like he kind of said like, yeah, I guess I realized that I, I didn't fully, Go like basically kind of cop cop to it and said kind of to explain it, but it's it's strange that he got. I'll say it was strange that he got benched today. That's all I'll say. I will say this: I was watching baseball last night, as you might expect, and on Baseball Savant, you can look at the leaderboards and see who's hit the hardest ball across the majors. And at least at the time I went to bed, do you know who had the hardest hit ball in Major League Baseball yesterday? I'm not going to wait for you to guess. Taylor Motter. That's right, Taylor Motter, a player I definitely remember. Uh, he's 33 years old, hit a ball 114.8 miles an hour. He has got 159 career major league games entering the season since 2016 with the Rays, the Mariners, the Twins, the Rockies, the Red Sox, the Reds, and now the Cardinals. And he actually pounded the ball a lot in spring trading. If you include spring, his three hardest exit velocity hits and six of his hardest 10 career hits have come in the last month. And for years, we have talked about Cardinals devil magic and how they just find guys and make them absolute dudes. If Taylor Motter is that guy, I think we got to shut it down. I think we got to come up with a brand new name because Taylor Motter can hit the ball 115 miles an hour now. What? This is a guy who in 2020 
during the pandemic, went to play in Korea. Remember when Korea was like the only baseball happening and you know, baseball fans were getting up at five in the morning to watch the KBO? He played in Korea for 10 games. He went four for 35 and got cut. And now he's... He's he's smashing the ball for the for the St. Louis Cardinals. This might be a new all time. You know, he would put Pete, if this if this sticks, he would put Pete, Pete Cosman to shame in terms of the annals of Cardinal Devil, Devil Magic history. I can't wait. He is one of sixteen players so far this year, at least among guys who had at least ten previous games to set a personal exit velocity best. Another one of those guys is Will Smith. I think we got to talk about the Dodgers for a minute. Will Smith hit a ball nearly one hundred and eleven miles on opening day. And I feel like he's sort of an underrated catcher in the sense that we don't talk about him like JT or Amito or Adley Rutschman, and maybe we should. Um, you know, you look at what the Dodgers have done, and he's a big part of it, right? Like we talked all about, well, what did they lose this winter? Why didn't they do more? Well, they still have Will Smith and Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts and also Jason Hayward. <laughs> this like, The whole first week has been like guys remembered, okay? Jason Hayward hit a home run last night, and I swear this is true. It was harder hit than any Dodger batted ball for the entirety of last season. And that was a team that won about 6,000 games. And here you have Jason Hayward, who has seven of his nine contacted batted balls, are hard hit. He's playing center field for them sometimes. I, I want him to succeed, but mostly I want the Dodgers to be able to say they like fixed him. That would be pretty wild. Going back to Will Smith for a second, I, I mean, like... I definitely think that he gets overlooked. I mean, the, 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 the bullface names on that team... I do. I mean, I don't. I always like. Oh, he's the most underrated player in baseball. I'm not going to get. But I kind of think he is. I mean, he might be the best catcher in baseball, and that's kind of a big deal when you're the best at your position, especially you know a key up the middle position. Um, he's certainly on the short list, and he like. He, I mean, he's. I mean, I'm not. He's obviously not going to keep up this like 250 OPS plus all year. But if you told me that Will Smith ends up top five MVP at the end of this year, I would not be surprised. Um, I'll buy that. He might actually end up having to catch a little more too because now they've got J.D. Martinez playing DH all the time. So there's fewer DH plate appearances for Smith, and I sort of wonder if that's going to keep his overall plate appearances down. Um, We can't talk about the Dodgers without mentioning Miguel Vargas, who has an amazing line right now. 375, 722, 500. (laughs) He has a 50% walk rate in 18 plate appearances and a 4% chase rate. You may remember Miguel Vargas from such things as injuring his hand in the spring and being told he was not allowed to swing for like two weeks and still drawing walks anyway, even though the pitchers knew he he would not be able to swing and he was still drawing walks. And we heard a lot about like, oh, his hit tool is going to be so good. And I'm not trying to draw too many, you know, takeaways from 18 plate appearances, but I'm sold. Like I am absolutely sold that this guy has an elite, Hitting eye, will he play second base well enough? I don't know. Um, but a 50% walk rate and a 4% chase rate, that is, I don't know that Barry Bonds ever did that in a week. <laughs> I wish we had data on that. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of years ago when uh, the Mets pitcher, Robert Gesellman, couldn't swing. And so, like, and like the league, no one in the league, the league kind of like slowly figured it out. And then Sam Miller wrote a very funny piece about it for for ESPN at the time. I mean, Vargas last year had a, a, a like a, a 404 OBP at Triple A, a very very neat 304, 404, 511 line. So like, this is someone who has shown in his career 70, 71 walks, 76 strikeouts. So like, it's not surprising that he's commanding the strike zone right now. It is elite command of the strike zone, but. I mean, there's a lot of concerns about the Dodgers coming to this year. Are they going to be as good? They lost so much talent. And, of course, they've opened the season with the Rockies 
the Rockies and the, the D-backs who are, you know, spunky. <laughs> yeah, jury's out, but they've outscored their opponents by 25 runs. Obviously, weird run differential stuff happens early in the year, but they're 4-2, 38 runs scored, 13 runs against. Like, Dodgers are still pretty good, it turns out. Well, since you brought up a team winning, uh, despite the lack of quality of their opponent, let's talk about the Rays for a minute. The Rays are 5-0, and and um, it's the top of the ninth, and they are winning by five runs against the Nationals, so they're about to be 6-0. and All those wins have come against Detroit, and Washington, who are not exactly, you know, the cream of the crop here. But still, I thought the race would be pretty good. Did you see who they're playing this weekend? Um, I didn't. So let's see. What would cause you to say that? Are they playing <laughs> Oakland? <laughs> they are playing Oakland. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, that's amazing. So at some point, they have to go on like a, I don't know, Houston, uh, Seattle, Yankees road trip or something. I did not know they were playing Oakland. That's amazing. They're going to be 10-0. Um, interesting guys there. It's so like Wander Franco is looking good. Luke Raley? Really? Or as Rays fans have told me, they call him Nuke Reiki. Weird. <laughs> Has three home runs and is slugging uh, and even 1,000. And I remember him uh, for being one of the random guys who got traded to and then uh, like away and to the same team. Like he was a Dodger prospect. Got traded to Minnesota in like the um, Brian Dozier deal, I think. And then traded back in the Kenta Maeda deal and then traded to the Rays. And he's playing first base for them, uh, which like you have a Luke Rayleigh, Yandy Diaz first base platoon situation is like oddly compelling. And then I think I said on this show a couple weeks ago, make sure you pay attention to Jeffrey Springs. We're going to do guys you should know more about later. Here's like my 10 second version of this. Jeffrey Springs had an ERA with Texas of 490. He had an ERA with Boston of 708. He has an ERA with Tampa of 261. Learned a sweeper this year. Had 24 strikeouts and two walks in the spring. And in his first start, 12 strikeouts and one walk. If you're not already on the Jeffrey Springs train, it is far too late. And then you think about what their rotation might look like. Shane McClanahan is fantastic. Tyler Glasnow is on his way back. I feel like I'm forgetting somebody obvious because I don't have their roster in front of me. Drew Rasmussen. Drew Rasmussen, yes, thank you. And um, like I'm into the Rays, especially because like we, we said this winter, they didn't really get the bat you know, that I thought they needed. But we were getting past Wander Franco too soon based on how young he is. And now maybe Luke Raley is a dude. Like, and, uh, the Rays are better than I thought. Yeah, I mean, Wander just homered again today, by the way. Um, uh-huh. Rosarena is playing well. Yanni Diaz is playing well. Josh, is it are we, is Josh Lowe or Josh Lau? Sure. <laughs> he's, off to, he's off to a good start. <laughs> um, you know, I was skeptical of the Rays. And I mean, I'm not, yeah, we've noted their schedule. So, but to their credit, they're not just beating these teams. They are walloping these teams. <laughs> Um, so it is. If, if you are a, a Rays fan, it's going about as well as it could right now. Uh, do you think Mets fans feel the same way? This is the other team I want to talk about. The Mets are. I, I got to say, entering today, the Mets were three and three, and the conversation around the Mets would have you believe that they have somehow lost like six of their first seven games. Like it's not that bad. They're five hundred. I know. Uh, you know, Scherzer had, has not pitched well, and they've had some injury issues. Obviously. They are in the middle right now of playing an absolutely bonkers game in Milwaukee because when I came upstairs to do this, they were getting crushed, and now it appears to be tied at six. <laughs> so I don't know how that game's going to end. Um, Pete Alonso has two homers today, which is great, but, man, their pitching has just been absolutely pounded by the Milwaukee Brewers so far. Scherzer did not look great. No, Scherzer didn't look great. Carlos Carrasco really didn't look very good. His velocity was way down. I feel like Scherzer... You give him a benefit of the doubt that you'd want it like he someone who's tinkers and you figure like, okay, he'll probably his velocity will probably go up a little bit um as the season goes on, builds up a little bit. Like 
the track record is strong enough, even despite his age, you can kind of be like, okay, like let's give him a little time. But between Verlander's injury and Carrasco looking not very good, it's, you know, it's, and then obviously Edwin Diaz's injury, so like takes the bullpen down a notch. The pitching just doesn't look great, and they haven't scored. I mean, today they've got the two Alonzo homers. But I think from, you know, from a Mets fan perspective, it's like you worry about the age of the pitching staff, and, you know, Carrasco is old by pitcher standards. Scherzer's older, and Verlander's even older than him. So part of the, the formula was like, well, pitchers, these guys are kind of know what they're doing. They're especially Verlander and Scherzer. Like, they they can, they're, they're still good enough to figure it out. And they still might. I wouldn't write it off. But more so than the three and three record, that's what you worry about. Teams are going to have six game stretches where they go three and three all the time, or maybe three and four by the time fans listen to this. But of course, they could be four and three by the time fans listen to this. And it's like, hey, we started on the road. We started with seven games on the road. We went four and three. Most teams would say, I'll take it. So it's really kind of how you want to look at it. But the, the, the pitching stuff more than anything um, is really what, what gives you pause. I really enjoyed so Carlos Carrasco's velocity dipped at the end of his start. You know, he's throwing fastballs under 90 miles an hour, which is not great. And after the game, he said, well, you know, it's, I was a little fatigued. I'm getting used to the pitch timer. Obviously, he's an older pitcher, which like, fine, that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, and his manager, Buck Schalter, said, well, maybe the gun wasn't right. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, we have, we have an answer. We don't need to come up with other answers. Um, it will help them, obviously, when Justin Verlander uh, is healthy and able to pitch. But we said all winter, I think, they're missing one big bat. I think that's still true. I don't know who that's going to be. I don't have a great fit where, like I, I said a while back, Tim Anderson will be the Atlanta Braves shortstop in July. I don't know who that is for the Mets because I'm just not sure where. Is it an outfielder? Like Brent Beatty, I guess you call it, although he's battling a, a thumb thing right now. Probably the sort of path of least resistance, assuming you know he's good, um, you never know what to expect from prospects, is Brent Beatty. As we talked about in this podcast a couple weeks ago, I mean, Eduardo Escobar is still a competent, solid major leaguer. That's why they kind of want to don't want to just kick him to the curb. They're a little hamstrung with their roster because they have Dan, Dan Vogelbach. It's like a little luxury to have like a, a platoon DH in this day and age, which is basically what he is. So there's not a great solution there. But I think that like if Beatty gets healthy and he was already hitting well at AAA, the drumbeat will only get louder. Then there's also Francisco Alvarez, which is, you know, if they feel comfortable about him catching. And again, also if he starts hitting a AAA, um, those are kind of your, your solutions. If those guys don't feel like they can be solutions by – the middle of the season, then yes, it will get very interesting to see what they do. Because it's weird to say about a team who won 101 games and had a very good offense last year. I don't know where they ranked, but it was very good, especially against right-handed pitching. But in the playoffs, it became very clear. It felt like they were missing a power bat. And they basically ran back the same lineup, which you kind of get because it was a good team. But then that means the same hole is still there. Well, they tried to get Correa, obviously. That didn't work out, but uh, they tried. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and uh, we're going to get into the guys that you should know a little bit more about. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We always like to talk a little bit about guys you should know more about, guys we want to highlight, guys who don't talk enough about. We don't usually do that in the offseason, but now baseball's back. And Matt has picked a guy I'd never actually heard of. I, personally, had never heard of when the season started. Matt, please take it away with, wait, really? Another Cleveland reliever? Haven't we done this before? And I will admit, I had not heard of this guy before the season, season began. But the guy I want to talk about is 
Tim Heron, a six foot six left handed reliever for the Guardians. Tim Heron made his major league debut on Sunday. Our own Mandy Bell wrote a really nice story about how his, his family was so excited, as most families would be, for their you know their family member to make the major leagues that they flew out to Seattle for his major league debut for a four game series. Did not play in game one. Did not pitch in game one. Did not pitch in game two. Did not pitch in game three. So they're they're thinking. Shoot, did we come all the way out here only to see him sit in the bullpen for four days? But sure enough, they were rewarded on Sunday when he came into the game in the fifth inning with two outs and a runner on first. He threw two balls to Jared Kelnick, and then he threw, struck struck him out on the next three pitches. And then he struck out the side in the sixth. A.J. Pollock, J.P. Crawford, and Julio Rodriguez. Four batters faced in his debut, four Ks. As our own Sarah Langs told us, he's the first pitcher on record to face four-plus batters in his major league debut and strike out all of them. The Guardians went on to win the game 6-5 to five in extra innings. Then, of course, you know, as managers are wont to do, he was so good that night. Terry Francona brought him back the next night. He threw another scoreless inning, allowed one hit, and struck out two. So right now, hey, it's just two, two and a third innings of work, but he struck out six of the eight batters he has faced and not uh, not, not a lot of run, not just one hit. As is the, the trend a lot of time with modern relievers, he's thrown 36 pitches this year. 28 of them are sliders, <laughs> so you know what you're going to get from him. But he's, he was hitting 95. He touched 97. Apparently in the past, he's thrown 99, so there is some velocity there. And as I mentioned, he's six foot six, so I can see why that would, might be a little bit imposing to face. We'll kind of see how the league feels about him once they see him uh, a few more times. Last year in the minors between AA and AAA, he had 101 strikeouts and 69 in the third inning, so he knows how to miss bats. Originally a 29th round pick uh, in 2018 out of University Indiana University Indiana University, entering the year was not even listed among Cleveland's top 30 prospects by MLB Pipeline. I have several questions about Tim Heron. First of all, uh, exactly like my wife, he was born in Terre Haute and went to Indiana University, so that stands out to me. Here's a question for you: uh, He is identified on his own personal social media as Timmy Heron, and I guess we're calling him Tim Heron. There aren't very many like adult prospect major league pitchers named Timmy. But here's the other thing. And uh, I'm going to break some podcast rules here because nobody can see this except for you. I just slacked you an image as we were talking here. Before he made it to the majors, he had his own official logo, which I think is cool. You know, usually you need to be like a superstar to get your own logo. But look at this. There's a T and an H and it says Timmy Heron. And he's standing in front of a 23. It's actually cool. Like I want one of these. And um, I, I wouldn't have thought someone I'd never heard of a couple of days ago. Now I'd be like, I want his merchandise. Like that's cool. I hope he succeeds. Yeah, I mean, with with with, with Luis Perdomo now pitching in Japan, this maybe this becomes my new guy. <laughs> I, my, my, I've got my Perdomo jersey collecting dust. Maybe I need a a Timmy Heron hoodie over here. My guy, I'm staying in the American League Central, and it's a guy I'm interested in because there's still a chance for his team to redeem one of the most absolutely cursed trades of all time. My guy is Detroit catcher Jake Rogers, who was a third-round pick by the Astros in 2016 out of Tulane, and he was traded to Detroit in the Justin Verlander trade, which has been a total disaster. The Tigers also got pitcher Franklin Perez, who has mostly been injured and hasn't come close to the majors, and outfielder Daz Cameron, who struggled pretty badly in three years for the Tigers and is now with Baltimore. Jake Rogers is kind of the last hope for that trade to be anything, and it hasn't been very smooth for him. They called him up in 2019, and he was, there's no better way to say this, awful. 27 OPS plus. 27. In 127 plate appearances, didn't play in 2020. There was no minor league season, and they didn't even call him up to the majors. He was somewhat interesting in 2021 back with the Tigers, a 119 OPS plus in 128 plate appearances. Cool. 
Then he hurt his elbow. Tommy John surgery in September. And so he didn't play in 2022. So he missed all of 20, missed all of 2022. Kind of completely fell off my radar. Hadn't thought about him at all. And then this spring, I noticed something. I was looking up spring hard hit leaders and he was crushing it. He had a 59% hard hit rate. That is seventh of 142 guys who had at least 20 tracked batted balls this spring. And so far in the season, he's hit four batted balls and three of them have been hard hit. And while I don't think this is necessarily going to be like a late career Mike Piazza story or anything like that, to get anything out of that trade all these years later for a guy who's obviously had a lot of difficulties missing two full seasons here would be really cool. So he's the kind of guy I'm rooting for. And also, I really strongly recommend you go look up his picture right now. Elite 80-grade catcher face. I cannot do the mustache he has justice. It is, if you know, like Sal Fasano's mustache, it's like this, but better because it's kind of redder and it's not surrounded by like a, a five o'clock shadow everywhere else. Everything else is clean shaven, but the thick red Fu Manchu thing he's got yeah, exactly. that, that is, is a, that phenomenal. Is, that is that is a Fu Manchu is exactly the word <laughs> you were you were looking for. Fu Manchu, it reminds it actually reminds me of uh for those of you who have seen Major League, uh Clue Haywood. That's the look. Yes. Outstanding pull. He does look like Clue Haywood. And you know, the Tigers had a really rough year last year. It's probably not going to be much better this year. You know, if you want something out of this year that's not just Miguel Cabrera's farewell tour, you need Spencer Torkelson to play better. He's already hit the ball really hard. You need Riley Green to play better. And you need someone to come out of nowhere. It can't just be the top prospects. And if you could say all these years later, got something out of that Verlander trade, that would be a cool story. So Jake Rogers, that's that's someone I'm rooting for for you and your outstanding Fu Manchu facial hair. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We'll see you next week.